Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On today's program, we have Dr. Derek E. White, Associate Professor of History and African American and Africana Studies, to discuss his new book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Black, or Blood, Sweat, and Tears, rather, chronicles the development of black college football in the 20th century and is among the first comprehensive histories of Black college athletics. Using the biography of Alonzo Jake Gaither and the history of football of the football program at Florida A&M University, FAMU for short, Dr. White shows how Black college football and its supporters created successful programs during segregation by relying on a network of athletic enthusiasts in the media, on campuses, and in the community. And Dr. White... It's a great guy, let me tell you. Met him out of Sala for the first time. Great guy. He has also published articles in New Politics, the Journal of African American History, the CLR James Journal, the Journal of African American Studies, and something close to my heart, Florida or the Florida Historical Quarterly. And he's also a, a black podcaster. And he co-hosts the Black Athlete Podcast with Professor Lou Moore, who is at Grand Valley State University. And let me tell you, I am so happy and so honored to have none other than Dr. Derek E. White from the University of Kentucky. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. No problem. Yeah, man. Uh, definitely. Because I'm happy that you're here, which is why I read probably the longest introduction that I have <laughs> of uh, episode number 57. And I'm like, good God almighty. I like this. I like this. Uh, man, it's a paragraph. It's a, it's a meaty paragraph there. And so um, once again, thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, before we get straight into it, can you talk to us about how you came to this particular topic for your book? Yeah, um, I don't know. A decade or so ago, I was teaching a sports history class at Florida Atlantic University, which was located in Boca Raton. And, uh, you know, one of the projects that I developed was a what I called a athletic biography of higher education. So looking at various institutions across the state of Florida, students in their own, either as individuals, as groups, had to investigate the athletic history and biography of, you know, Florida Atlantic, University of Florida, Florida State, Florida A&M, uh, Bethune-Cookman, Miami, and a host of other schools across the state. And so one of the unique things I like about um, the state of Florida is that you have these, you know, you have old institutions like Florida A&M and the University of Florida. You have very recent institutions like uh, FAU, Florida Atlantic University, or FIU, Florida International. You have private schools like Miami uh, and Bethune-Cookman. And so this array of both when st- schools were started and founded uh, vis-a-vis their athletic departments provides a really kind of really interesting idea to, to really explore various themes in a sports history, whether stadium building, uh, Title IX, race, all these kinds of issues, uh, revenue and non-revenue sports. So these are kind of general themes that we were talking about in the sports history class. Uh, and so the group that comes back with Florida A&M that was assigned Florida A&M comes back and they tell me that they can't find anything about Florida A&M. And I knew enough about that, you know, Florida A&M was really good at football. And my brother went is a graduate of Florida A&M. I knew about Jake Gaither. And I just thought that the students were not doing due diligence in their research. Um, but, and the truth is that when I helped them do some research, we found some more things, but not nearly enough uh, material. Uh, and so this really kind of spurred my interest in really trying to explore and tell the story of of, of Florida A&M and Jake Gaither as a kind of important piece. And initially it was like, oh, maybe I'll do an article. Um, but Jake Gaither's biography is just so interesting as a person who, um, you know, he survives uh, two brain tumors and has his surgery in 1945. Uh, he lives to be like 90 years old, over 90 years old. And so he really, you know, transcends most of the 20th century, uh, plays college football at Knoxville College uh, in the 1920s, 
And so like that legacy in that time provided an, an ample way of kind of like telling a an important story and really through him telling a story of black college football. And and it was an incredible story and it and it's not only, you know, a great historical uh grounding in Jake Gaither black college football, you know, and and within this, you know, war moment there are a lot of different areas that your book touches. But it's also something that has contemporary relevance as well. And we'll definitely get to that over the course of our discussion. And, and so with that, you know, you had talked about Knoxville College and, you know, I, I you know, run across there uh, over the summer uh, in my dealings in, um, in in the mountain area over there. Um, and, and so it's very like I had no I had actually no clue that um, Knoxville College dang near existed <laughs> up until like actually this year. Um, and, and so can you talk to us a bit about the early nature of black college football that Jake Gaither is getting immersed in. So, 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 so uh, set the scene for us if you if you can. So what? So yeah, no. So if you think about the 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 decades, you know, black college football is founded. It starts in 1892 when uh, Biddle University, which is now uh, Johnson C. Smith, uh, plays uh, Livingston College uh, in 1892. And North Carolina. And so one of the things that I think that's interesting is that, uh, you know, the question that I had for myself in these early years between 1892 and on just on the other side of World War One was, you know, how did black colleges and why did black colleges start college football programs? Right. Is, you know, if we look at the American landscape of sports, um, you know, it's basically baseball, boxing, um, horse racing as the leading sports in America, you know, there's this moment where cycling is a big deal, but on college campuses, those are the main sports. Um, minus horse racing, of course, and then football in new England. Right. And so you have this sense that football is a huge deal, uh, in the, what will become the Ivy league, uh, in these private schools in new England and begins to spread across the country. And so how, you know, because the nature of segregation, how do these, how does the sport arrive at historically black colleges? And so one of the things I learned is that, you know, the early kind of uh, coaches at most black colleges, not all, but many of them were uh, products. They were racial pioneers at predominantly white institutions. So at Florida A&M, it's a man by the name of George Sampson, who is a graduate of in 1898 or 1899 from Case Western University uh, in Cleveland, where he was a two sport athlete. Uh, he comes from a kind of fairly well off family, black middle class family in Ohio. Uh, and he gets a job as a professor at Florida A&M and he comes and he says uh, that he found no extracurricular activities and particularly he found no sports for the young men. And so he introduced football to the to the male population at Florida A&M. Right. And you see this story being repeated all over uh, across black college football. Um, and so a guy by the name of C.C. Cook, uh, who will who went to Cornell, will bring uh, black college football, introduce black college football at um, at Howard University, uh, and you see a similar kind of story. And so when Jay Gaither gets to Knoxville College, he, like many black colleges, uh, Knoxville had a preparatory school and what we would think of as college. And so the lines between those two spaces are very um, uh, diffuse, like people, you know, and so we'll see athletes like Gaither play uh, as a junior in high school all the way through his senior year of college. And so you see that these black colleges uh, in the 18, uh, in the teens and early, I mean, excuse me, in the 19 uh, teens and the 1920s, uh, these black colleges are, are starting to develop these robust rivalries. They're starting to develop uh, serious programs and it becomes football becomes part and parcel of the athletic and extracurricular landscape at historically black colleges. So when Gaither gets there, he's coming into this world that is is emerging and football is emerging as one of the central kind of extracurricular programs uh, that begins to take place. Uh, you see the creation of colleges. I mean, the creation of conferences, excuse me, uh, the SIAC, the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, the CIAA is founded. Uh, the SWAC is founded. All this is happening between 1916 and 1922. And so all this is where Gaither is starting to arrive uh, at Knoxville College. And so he takes very much part of that. And so I think that he provides an interesting kind of moment, right? His entry into this, the, this world comes at a moment when it is really starting to take hold on co black college campuses all across the country. 
and he's just overwhelmed, right? He didn't know, he didn't, you know, he learning the game as a high school student. There's no television. It's not on the radio. It's not part and parcel of kind of this broader black culture in the way we think of the contemporary landscape. And so he's learning the game and he's learning its values uh, and he's 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 enamored with it. Uh, and so that's what really draws him in as a, and he wasn't like a great player, right? Like he wasn't a star, but he was very enamored with the game and the lessons that it taught about manhood and about um, what it meant to be uh, a man, an African-American man, especially in the early 20th century. And, and, you know, that's a really, really great grounding for us to really understand, you know, how, how Jake Gaither, you know, gets developed. Right. And, and, you know, and you see this a lot with, with, with coaches, right. A lot of great coaches were not, <laughs> you know, were not great. Uh, uh, or a lot of great coaches were not, you know, either actual professional players, if not really good college players. And so, you know, it's just a, a particular uh, connection from, from the past that that's definitely uh, permeates our present. And so with that being said, you know, so, so we talk about Knoxville college, we talk about, you know, these, this other early nature of, of college sports, but how does fam use, right? Like, let's talk a little bit more about like, you know, before Jay Gaither, you know, gets to FAMU, what's the football landscape like with college football in the state of Florida, right? Because we know F- Florida as like one of those football factories as far as, you know, putting out, you know, not only a great college a- uh, athletes, but also, you know, professional as well. So what's it looking like in this early uh, 20th century moment for for, for uh, college football in the actual state of Florida? You know, college, you know, football, uh, college football comes to the South very slowly, right? Like we have, I, you know, I always remind students that the, the center of the college football world uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, and even in, well into the early parts of the 20th century are, um, is the, what will become the Ivy League, right? Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, these programs are the leading programs in the country, right? Um, uh, just for instance, the University of Georgia just celebrated its um, hundred anniversary of opening up its stadium, Sanford Stadium, and the first team that they played uh, in Sanford Stadium was, I believe, either Harvard or Yale. Right, that was a big deal to get one of those programs to the University of Georgia. Right, like it seems so out of like in the contemporary landscape, that seems so weird. But that was a big deal. That was a coup for the University of Georgia because that set, signaled that they were very serious about football by getting one of these northeastern teams to. Uh, to play in their new stadium. In Florida, we see that the, the, the you know college football landscape, black and white, was it was super underdeveloped in part because of the nature of of, of Florida. Um, you know, the state of Florida is a place where most folks uh, it is a very transient. It's a it's a not well developed um, outside of the coast. Um, and so the University of uh, Florida A&M University or Florida A&M College, as it was called in those days, uh, was just a bit player, wasn't even very good in the football, in the HBCU landscape. Uh, after George Sampson started the program, they, you know, they have a, several coaches, many of them student led for a couple of years. Um, and they're not very good. Right. Uh, and I think that's, you know, not because they're not trying. It's just that they just don't have enough inner development. And part of that development is. The high schools are not being developed. They're not really playing the sport at the high school level, at the black high schools in particular. Um, But this really begins to change with, uh, you know, with Eugene Bragg, right? Bragg has been around the college for several years. He comes and goes. He's an early professor. He leaves and gets gets a master's degree. He comes back as a dean. At some point, he's an interim president, vice president. Uh, And so Bragg really is instrumental and really trying to develop the athletic department. And so they make a couple of important hires, including his son, who unfortunately passes away uh, from a, a, a burst appendix, given the nature of kind of segregated healthcare in those days. And then they make this important decision. They hire William Bell in 1936. And William Bell had been, was the first African-American, all-American football player at uh, the Ohio State University, my alma mater. Um, and Bill Bell had been uh, coaching at Claflin College in South Carolina, and they he was doing pretty well. And they hired him at Florida A&M, and he comes in and he really changes. So this is coming at this particular moment, right? It's in you know the tail end of 
we're still in the, the Great Depression, but they're still looking for ways in which they can improve their athletic department. And one of the things that they, they discuss is developing physical education program. And so with the development of a physical education program and beginning the changing of kind of the uh, requirements, uh, for educational requirements for high school teachers, black and white, FAMU is able to slowly begin to get a foothold into the uh, becoming kind of a, a, a bit, little bit of a player in the black college football world. In 1937, uh, Bill Bell uh, makes what becomes the most important decision for Florida and in history. He hires Jake Gaither as an assistant coach uh, from St. Paul's College uh, in North Carolina. And he does this. And Jake Gaither, it was a pretty well-respected coach. The two men were both working on their master's degrees at, at Ohio State at the time. They were friends. Uh, and so he said, you know, come down to Tallahassee and you can be my assistant coach. And from there, Within two, within three years, they win. Their, they go undefeated, and they win Florida a and first national title. Uh, and then all that, go, of course, gets disrupted by World War II, and the school's kind of thrown into a lurch, uh, in part because you know men are being uh, drafted. Uh, Bill Bell will join the military. Jake Gaither uh, has uh, turns out that he has two brain tumors, and he has this emergency surgery at Ma- in Nashville at Vanderbilt. And the whole program looks as if it's going to go, not going to be able to recreate the little bit of success they had under both Bill Bell and Gaither as an assistant coach. Um, And 1945, at the end of the war, Bill Bell decides that he doesn't want to live in Tallahassee because his wife has severe allergies. (laughs) And you know this, Adam, right? Um, Yeah, you know, the, the, the Spanish moss tree, those trees, man, they blow that, that, like, and so it's, you know, people who don't have allergies when they come to Tallahassee realize that they have allergies. Yes, oh. absolutely. <laughs> I know that very well after being at FAM for five years. And my brother was there for, for even longer. So 11 years of McNeil uh, boys from 05 to 2015. Absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, the allergy season just destroyed and his wife just couldn't take it. So they found a they went to North Carolina A&T. Uh, and the school had nobody to coach football. And the president comes and says, hey, uh, Jay Gaither was feeling a little bit better. He was like, look, why don't you, you're the athletic director. Why don't you just coach for this year uh, and see how it goes and see how you're feeling. And we can find a new coach next year. And Jay Gaither goes out and wins uh, nine games his first year. Uh, and he never looks back. He takes the, he's not the interim coach by the end of the year. He's a full-time coach and he coaches for the next 25 years, 24 years at Florida A&M. And so that's how Florida, you know, that's how Jake Gaither, it was not an intentional plan, right? It was never, um, we, you know, Jake Gaither was this young up and coming coach that we had to have. He, you know, he only got the job in part because Bill Bell's wife had these allergies. He survives this brain tumor. And there was no guarantee that even when he took the job that Florida A&M was going to be good because one of the things that happens is that before World War II, black college football is dominated by private schools. Tuskegee, um, Howard, um, Wiley, these kinds of programs are dominant. But after World War II, because men are returning with their GI Bill, they are. Uh, we see this shift in the, the football landscape and the athletic landscape where uh, public uh, HBCUs are now uh, becoming the major player. So we see this subtle shift. So now Southern's a major player. Grambling's a major player. Prairie View's a major player. Uh, Florida A&M obviously is a major player. Tennessee State is a major player. Morgan State, right? So these programs really started on the rise in part because they're able to grow in part because of the GI Bill after World War II. And and that's the thing, like, you know, thinking about because I'm a I'm a colonial I'm a colonial guy, but you know, the great thing about New Books and FM, I get to read across and I, I get real happy reading about you know this contemporary or quote unquote more contemporary uh stuff and you know, the GI Bill is always posited as this uh maybe not within black studies or, or in our corners, but you know, popularly throughout the, the culture, throughout the country. The GI Bill is seen as a very progressive measure, allowing people to be able to gain educations off of their wartime service. But as we know, it is not exactly um, equal. Yeah, that E word. It's not exactly equal. Uh, but one one of the aspects that 
you touch on in the book that I didn't know too much about was how how the GI Bill and the aftermath of the war helped to change college football uh, uh, structurally and and just just in many just various ways. So, can you talk to us a bit about you know this particular at, in the aftermath of of the GI Bill and and the, and the Second World War, while also helping us to understand. You know, this leading to, you know, this renaissance of of black college football and, you know, the 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 greatness of a lot of these programs, you know, comes from this particular uh, moment as well. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things that are happening here. First, um, you know, before World War Two, all of college football and even professional football as it existed, um, what we the early kind of NFL was Ironman football, which meant that um, the players played both ways. And so football was a much smaller, had a much smaller imprint. So, you know, it was not unusual for you to run both your varsity and freshman football team with 35 players, right? That's not unusual at black or white colleges. But what happens is because the war, uh, the NCAA decides that they will, for the first time ever, allow for unlimited substitutions in college football because there are so few men that they don't want people to get hurt. So they're giving them an opportunity to create, um, you know, uh, to create kind of uh, to lessen the impact of having uh, so few men and try to encourage more people to play as also a byproduct of that. Right. So that they could get more people participating in the sport. Uh, at the University of Michigan, they create the head coach there decides that he's going to have an offense and defensive unit. And this is going to be the first time that we see kind of the special hyper specialization that we that we come to know in modern college football. Um, black colleges are not absent of this. They are watching this this discussion happening so that when the men return to campus with their money from the GI Bill. That HBC, these men, many of them had played college football before the war or they learned about college football during the war and they they could freely go to any college without having to sit out. Um, this was one of the kind of things that passed with the NCAA. Uh, and so they come to college with their older, they're more mature. They know a lot about the game. They play the game. Uh, and this opens the door that says to uh, for a school like Florida A&M is that now they've got all these new men back on campus and now they're going to be able to grow their football program. And so as you noted, right, that the GI Bill was unequal. So there was not a lot of opportunity if you lived in Ohio, for instance, for you to always get into Ohio State or Ohio University. You That black colleges often recruited these uh, African-American players uh, and former GIs from the North to come play and go to school in the South at HBCUs as well. So you have this robust folks, and then the roster sizes begin to grow, and these these public HBCUs like Florida A&M are able to really take full advantage of this. So one of the things I noticed was that the size of the rosters grew from, uh, you know, uh, during the war, uh, Bill Bell talked about he could, he you know he ran his whole athletic department with like thirty eight student athletes, basketball, track and field, football, et cetera. Um, right. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and then after the war by 1955, you see that the roster for football alone is inching towards 60. Uh, and so this, this, this huge difference in size, and this is beginning to happen everywhere else as well, that this is going to be an accumulation that allows for black colleges, especially public black colleges to really become major players in the football landscape. Um, because segregation means that now they've got access to all these, um, they access to all these student athletes that are primarily in their state, and so you see this thing kind of happening in two ways. One, that as more students are graduating from Florida A and M University, most people, as as the old saying goes, uh, once they have a college degree, they can do really two things: they can become teachers or <laughs> preachers. Right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> And when you look at the data, um, the data really supports that, that many of them are going into education and they're getting jobs uh, in this expanding kind of of 
educational system, segregated educational system throughout the state of Florida. And so Gaither would say, you know, ni- by 1960, he'd say 90% of the high school coaches are my boys, right? They're former players of his. And in many cases, that's true, right? Like he's, he's looking at the number of gra- Florida A&M graduates throughout the state of Florida is so robust so that when talented players come through, it's natural for them to be ushered into to Tallahassee to play for Jake Gaither. In fact, it's almost stranger when they don't. So the most famous example I always use as a counterexample is Deacon Jones, mm-hmm. right? The Hall of Fame defensive end who's one of the greatest players in NFL history is from Florida. Like and Edenville, I actually went I to I, – I know that well because I went to church in Eatonville for the first, first 18 years of my uh, – well, about 15 years of my life. So, yeah, we, we, we learned about Deacon Jones in our education. <laughs> Right. And so Deacon Jones talks about in his in his autobiography that the reason he he wanted to go to Florida A&M and the reason that he didn't is because him and his head coach did not get along. Right. And his head coach was yep. a Florida A&M alum. And so he passed the word along saying that Deacon Jones was difficult. And this is how he gets to South Carolina State and eventually Mississippi Valley State. And then, of course, into the NFL. Right. And so the, the it worked both ways as many. Uh, you know, we talk about how it ushered Bob Hayes or Willie Gallimore, these famous uh, players for at Florida A&M to Tallahassee. It also, in some cases, shut a person like Deacon Jones out. But in more times than not, that if you were a talented athlete, you ended up at Florida A&M's campus. So much so that Bethune Cookman complained c- regularly that um, that Gaither was running a farm system in the, the high schools in wow. the state of Florida, right? <laughs> um, and so that kind of dynamic is at play. And we see this being replicated. So one of the things that made Tuskegee so good is that they were able to do some of this before World War II. And what we see similarly uh, in, the, in the Tennessee State's famous track, women's track program, right, is that they did the same thing, right? That if you are talented and you are in a three or four hour radius from Nashville, you were ushered into their track program as a high school student, mm-hmm. you know, in the summers. And so they really started to really develop it. So, you know, these networks to me are very interesting because I always wondered how, you know, I didn't want to take for granted that somehow Black people were somehow natural athletes, right? I think that's a, a, the assumption uh, that often yep, gets yep. kind of unspoken. And I was much more interested in the, how do you look at these networks in which the, the athletic talent is being developed and also recruited? And so that's one of the things that I found. And so this leads to what I call the golden age of black college football. So this is something that happens not just at Florida a and This happens in Louisiana with Southern and Grambling starting to come on. This happens in Texas as Prairie View is is a as a major player, it happens in the Mid Atlantic when Morgan State comes into comes becomes a power. Of course, it happens at Tennessee State under John Merritt, um, and so these similar kinds of infrastructures are operating that are shuttling the, that segregation is working uh, in ways that we expect and not in ways that we don't expect, right? And and you know. Thinking through Black college uh, athletics, one of the counterexamples I always use is that j- there are more Black people in the state of Georgia than any other state in the union yep, for most yep, of yep. the 20th century, right? <laughs> and when we look at, if you look at the, the success, like whether it's basketball or track or football, that none of those schools in the state of Georgia had had any kind of sustained success, mm-hmm. Right. So it can't it can't just be numbers and black co- and segregation, right? It can't be that, right? Fort Valley has never been a major player, right? Albany State has never been a major player. These have been great institutions, but historically they've never been, you know, dominant in the football landscape. And so the question that always raised for me is that there's something else happening besides just simple segregation as a solution for why these black colleges are good. And so that's what Gaither kind of points us to. John McClendon points us to something very similar. If we look at basketball, of course, we talked about women's track and field. Uh, and so we see this everywhere. And I think that's kind of one of the more important pieces that I think that we, when we look at this golden age, that we don't give enough credit to the institutions and the coaches and the development and the recruiting mechanisms that are at play. Rather, 
the simple the simple answer, at least in the sports scholarship, has always well, of course, black colleges are good because they had because of segregation. And I was like, well, that undermines the role of these coaches and these programs. And one of the more important aspects of your book that um, that, that I didn't want to leave before we leave this particular scene, how much the how, how much co- black college football helps to create a, a subsection of the black tourist economy because mm. you know you 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 talked a bit about um in your book about you know our the, the way that black college football works within the quote unquote classics uh classic uh, system right um you know classics plural not you know a side note i cannot stand as we move towards november it's called the Florida Classic, everybody. It's not the classics. That that ain't because like that that is just one thing that, you know, to, to use a, a family guy analogy, what really grinds my gears is when people <laughs> say, Oh, you going to the you going to the uh you going to classics? Bruh, bruh, it ain't no thing called the classics, man. And that's not a thing. But let me let, let me get let me comport myself right quick. All right, we back. Um, can you talk to us about the the way that um, you know during this moment about how the uh, the the tourist economy within uh, black college football and, and within the black community generally gets to really be kind of founded within this kind of nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties time frame. Yeah, I mean, I think that so let, let me do this in two parts, right? Okay. One is the class to take to take on your the, the discussion of the classics. Uh, <laughs> uh um that the classics are really the cornerstone and really what black colleges have contributed to the broad, broader understanding of college football, right? Like people will understand a rivalry game uh, as Ohio State and Michigan, but the classic is something else that's beyond a rivalry. It's both uh, a family reunion and internal rivalry, right? And so the first classic that we see take on kind of major implication is is Lincoln versus Howard, where you have the black middle class communities of Philadelphia and, and Washington D.C. Um, you know, using their powers and, and their 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 economic power, but also their social cultural capital, right, to show highlight the value of their institutions in their annual kind of Thanksgiving weekend game. Uh, what makes Florida A&M uh, so become as much of power as anything else is that in 1933, they formed the Orange Blossom Classic, uh, which was initially held in Jacksonville and for several years moved around. It was in Orlando, it was in Tampa and mostly in Jacksonville, those three cities until 1947, when they decided to move the game to the to Miami. And once it's in Miami, they are the first black college and really kind of black citizens to play in the orange bowl on a regular basis. Um, black people were in there as workers. None had been on the field until Florida A&M uh, plays in the 1947 orange blossom classic. And what, the, what the, one of the reasons that the classic it operates so well is that it is because it's the first Saturday in December for most of its, most of its history, the first Saturday in December it served as when FAMU got very good as a de facto national title game. They would select one of the best programs about midway through the season and invite them to come play in the classic. So for everybody else across the country, that meant you have a great season when you got invited to the classic. And the reason that they could wait so long is that people, you know, black folks were willing to come to, to Jacksonville. They were willing to come to Tampa. They were willing to come to Orlando and they were especially willing to come to Miami. Um, to, to watch one of the most important games. And so you see all these fans, uh, not just Florida A&M fans, but opposing fans, the entire kind of black communities across the state of Florida would make their way into uh, Miami after 1947. And so you look at the attendance numbers in the mid fifties through the mid sixties and Florida A&M is averaging approximately like 48 to 55,000 people every single year for the Orange Blossom Classic. In many years, they outsell the Orange Bowl, right? The Orange Bowl, which is predominantly white institutions that are playing in it later in, on January 1st. So they understand that, that there are these black economic and tourist dollars, right? Uh, and so you can see this in, uh, you know, in the hotel industry in Overtown, uh, eventually black, the number of, of people coming to the game will uh, outstrip um, 
the number of rooms and capabilities in Overtown with the historic black neighborhood in, in Miami. Uh, and they will force uh, some of the hotels on South Beach to open their doors to black residents. So while Gaither was not necessarily an, a, a vocal advocate of civil rights, he believed in using his athletic team's success to open uh, kind of doors for other black people. And this is just one example of that. Yeah, no, and, and it's a phenomenal story. And sorry to y'all and who might be listening. There's a pick up our uh, recycling outside. So if you hear that, then my apologies on that. Um, but nevertheless, um, I, I'm, I'm very much, you know, interested in, in how, you know, black uh, economies and specifically black tourism worked. And so I, that was one of the parts about your book that I did not expect um, to, 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 to see. And so um, another part on the notion of civil rights that I thought was really interesting as well. Um, and this is a little bit later in your book. Um, you talk a bit about how in the waning portion of the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, you know, black power movements going mm-hmm. on and, 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 you know, the, the way that college campuses, you know, PWIs are beginning to change in, in, in different ways too, right? And along with the Black Power Movement and such. So how does, right, you know, we have uh, a Brown v. Board in, 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 50, in the 50s, you know, how does, how does integration change Black college sports? And specifically, how does it change um, the, the pool of athletes that Florida a m uh, has recruited or, or recruits during this time? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, as other scholars have talked about looking at HBCUs, right, the, the civil rights movement puts, I think, black colleges between a rock and a hard place, right? One, they want to be generally supportive of the idea of integration. At the same time, they also recognize that they too are a, a they're in the business of higher education, that integration can harm uh, you know, can force them to lose their job, right? So in Florida A and M, um, and and it also put it pitted administrators against their students, right? So when we see after 1960, for instance, when student activists starting it with in Greensboro on February 1st, 1960, uh, begin the sit-in movement that spreads all over the country, including into Tallahassee, right? That you know the at Florida A and M, the governor's on the phone with uh, George Gore and others, like, hey the president of, of, of FAMU, like, hey, you need to get your students in, in line, right? What are they doing leading this protest and challenging the racial order? Um, and so Gaither will prohibit his student athletes from play, uh, part- from participating. Not prohibit, but he strongly discouraged them from participating. Uh, although mm-hmm. although we, I found a, a couple of examples of Black folks participating, right? Like, so it's not his student athletes participating as well. So that's one. And then, you know, so this puts Gaither, who is really the most powerful black person in Tallahassee and one of the most powerful black people in the state of Florida, um, in this odd position of seemingly supporting segregation, right? Because he works, you know, he's telling people that they should be patient and take their time uh, and that Black folks in Tallahassee begin to whisper that he's an Uncle Tom, right? And that picks up extreme. Uh, that picks up a, a, a steam, especially when Black Power rises on the scene in the late '60s. Um, and so Stokely Carmichael gives this fiery speech on campus where he's standing on the car and he's got all these student activists around him and they're threatening to go. They, you know, they break into one of the. They climb through a window and break into the building and all this stuff. And Gaither says that all that's unacceptable. Right. That behavior is unacceptable. Right. So it's very respectable politics, but also believing in the traditional uh, racial race relations negotiations as a way of uh, of change at the same time. And this is the point I always try to emphasize at the same time, he sees his pro athletic program as a quintessential example of black power. Right. Like without mm. with, without the rhetoric. Right. Like he sees. OK. You know, he's like, I'm not using any of that rhetoric, but this is what black people like. If you gave us the the resources and we organize our own thing, we could be successful. If you give us, we can show this. If you give us an opportunity to play against predominantly white teams, we could be a quintessential example. So, at this very moment when white uh, white colleges PWIs begin to start recruiting 
black athletes beginning in 1966, 1967, and 1968 in the state of Florida, um, you get this moment in which, you know, Gaither has to make a different pitch. And he's like, look, FAMU is a better school for you, not only academically, but culturally, like the entire, you know, the entire administration, the faculty and the students care about you in a way that you can't get at the University of Florida. Right. So he's making a human resource argument that the that the the human resources and relationships at Florida AM for black student athletes, but black students in general, is better than the the material resource advantage that the University of Florida offers. Right. And he's trying to balance those two. And he's making this pitch. And he sees himself as he begins to lose players to Tampa, University of Tampa, uh, University of Florida and University of Miami, black players to those schools, he's like, man, we are a black school being done in by integration. And so he says something, uh, this is a paraphrase. He's like, he's like, I'm not against segregation, but I I do think that the process of, of I'm, I'm not against desegregation, but I do think that the process of desegregation is wrong, right? Like we, like I'm going to lose not just my athletic department, but then this is threatening all of Florida A&M and many alums. In fact, when I first started doing research, Dr. Dawson in the library said, are you going to talk about the times when Florida state try to, um, to annex FAMU? Yep. Yep. You know, and I was like, you know, and I, I didn't know anything about this. And I was like, well, go on tell me about, <laughs> tell me tell, about, tell this me story. more, tell me <laughs> more, tell me more. <laughs> um, and she she brought up this really great example uh, that I talked briefly about in my in the book about when Florida A and M had gotten a law school in Tallahassee, um, and then after Disa in the mid sixties, they decided that they were going to close the law school uh, and open up a law school at Florida State. Uh, and there was this is all coming from the state, right? This is all you know. They got the law school as a way to stave off integration, but once it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, then they closed the law school. And so Gaither's in the middle. This is happening in like the late 60s, right before he retires. And he says, uh, you know, he's very clear that like now all of a sudden that, you know, they're going to try to get rid of not just my program, but the school, the entire school. So he has this tremendous love for the institution that gets that doesn't really reflect when we just teach the story of student led activism. Does that make sense? Right. Like it's, I, I try Absolutely. to provide, I try to, I try to make a little bit more nuanced argument about really thinking about the role of black colleges. Um, and, and my, my good friend and, and former grad student, um, uh, classmate Jelani favors new book about, um, you know, black student activists coming out of HBCUs. He kind of, he kind of nails this idea down even further that we've mischaracterized, some of these administrators, not all, you know, most of them get described as being carrying the water for their segregationist governance, but they, they wanted to keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. And that's a, and that's a, that's a, that's a tough, tough decision that students were not necessarily uh, in that activist spirit where they weren't fully considering. It's not until the late sixties that we see that when they're like Florida state's threatening to cl- take over FAMU. And in fact, politicians are saying like we act like the last 15 years of civil rights hasn't happened like why are we keeping both why is famu still open and so there's all these pushes in various points uh by presidents and administrators and jake gaither and all alumni to keep florida a&m open uh and this is like a decade or so after the sit-in movement calling for integration in all these various different kinds of ways and it's so wild i graduated from fam like five years ago and yet I am now sitting in the classroom of Dr. Derek E. White talking about my school. This is a blessing. This this, this is why we do it. This right here is why we do it. And, you know, that that's a phenomenal story because, you know, as, as a, as a recent FAMU grad, it still feels like there are times where, you know, FAMU is, uh, or Florida State is trying to annex us, you know, in part through um through through property right just encroaching mm-hmm. further and further uh closer uh closer to the the tracks uh the, the actual literal for those who have never gone there is a literal like uh railroad track that separate, uh, actually separates us um and so one of the other aspects too talking about florida state and um you know so we got a, 
um, we're a little over, but you know, indulge me just a little bit if you can, just just a little bit, please, no problem. Um, you talk about talking about inequality. You talk about the difference in stadium sizes as being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. emblematic of a lot of what you just spoke about. And when you when you when I read that in your book, I was like, dang. If you actually look at the full expanse of the history, FAMU Stadium should be much bigger. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so for the, for for our listeners who may not be fully aware, Florida State was a women's college until 1945, right? Until the post-World War II, when all these men with GI Bills forced a, a the women's college to become co-ed and it becomes Florida State University. Uh, and when they, as a result of this transition to a co-educational institution, they introduced, uh, you know, college athletics in 1947, in particular men's football, uh, I mean, football program is begins in 1947. But one of the things that happened, so this is a late, they're very late. And so by the, you know, in the mid fifties, when Florida A&M is, is at the best football program in the state of Florida, in Florida, one of the best football programs, black or white in the Southeast. Um, they, uh, that Florida state begins to build its first stadium in 1953, I believe it's state sport supported. So as soon as they, you know, they're not very good. They're not playing anybody. They haven't even started playing university of Florida at this point. And, you know, because of their proximity to the state capitol in Tallahassee, they are able to 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 lobby to get a stadium built, and they do. And it's bigger than Florida A and M Stadium. And Gaither is hugely upset. He's like, "Look, we've won all these games. We've been the number one team. We've been averaging this many fans. We deserve a stadium." Because they know that revenue is being generated in those days before television. It was generated by stadium and ticket sales. And we deserve a stadium, a new stadium, and a stadium kind of worthy of our our, our uh, success. And even when they ask and request a stadium, the state legislature is like, no, we'll give you a stadium, but it can't be bigger than Dope Campbell Stadium. Wow. Right? It can't. Right? And so it comes in smaller. And even when they agree for 10,000 seats, for instance, they there's a push from some politicians to make it 5,000 and use that extra money for Dope Campbell Stadium, right? So stadium, like, so I, you know, I talk about how that the success on the field at Florida A&M was unbelievably between the lines on the gridiron was, was among the best program, but really it's the institutionalized racism that gets us into this contemporary moment, right? The stadium sizes, right? It's not just boosters weren't paying for that in those days. There aren't any boosters, Right. Like there aren't any men like there to be perfectly honest, Florida State's a great case study because there you know, is a women's college like they're not raising from those the, that, you know, generations of women alums, huge amounts of money for a right. football stadium. <laughs> right. So it has to be state supported in those early years. Right. And the president, uh, Dope Campbell, is actually um uh, it is actually trying to to you know he's making a lobby case about why this is important for the state of Florida and for Florida State University at the expense of Florida A and M. And so when we look at that legacy, right, that legacy means that from the very beginning of the stadium building, you see that Florida A and M is playing catch up that they will never be able to 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 meet or equal become equal to Florida Florida State, no matter what happens on the field. And so this is the kind of thing that leads us to this contemporary landscape in which, you know, Florida State now, you know, Doe Campbell Stadium holds like 80,000 people or something crazy like that. Uh, and FAMU after FAMU after several decades of, of diff- different kinds of uh, stadium remodeling, I believe it holds mm-hmm. 30,000, but I may be wrong, but a fraction. And so you, if you just looked at stadium size, you think, oh, man, the history is on Florida you know, Florida state side. But the truth is, if we're just looking at pure titles and wins and percentages, even when we include Bobby Bowden's great run as head football coach, you know, Jay Gaither's FAMU program, and then Billy Joe's run in the late nineties, uh, supersede that. And Rudy Hubbard's, uh, titles in the late seventies supersede what Florida state has done. Um, but none of that matters because really what matters is being a predominantly white institution. 
And that's why, you know, this is the hunt for, for those who don't know, this is actually the 150th anniversary of the first um, uh, college football game. Um, and, and actually, I'm sitting in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where I attend school at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, which was the institution that, you know, was one of the two institutions that was a part of that. So not only is our discussion of college football and black college football not only important historically and in the contemporary, but it literally based upon pure location where the college football started. Right. And so this is why this this discussion is, is again, so important and allows us to better understand in this important 150th anniversary to also understand how our contemporary moment of college athletics and specifically where the black college college football athlete is literally bankrolling an entire system, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. with, you know, the revenue and non revenue generating sport uh, sports. And and it actually leads into my final set of questions uh, because recently um, journalists, uh, and, and recent mover from ESPN to the Atlantic, uh, Jamel Hill put an article out ca- effectively calling for uh, high school athletes to or black college, uh, black high school athletes going into uh, college to spur, you know, to, to not go to PWS and to go to HBCUs. And so I guess in a way to kind of, you know, res- I guess in a way of responding, how does your book inform your opinion on, you know, uh, on, on Jamel Hill's article and the discussions that have come out of it? I think, I think there are a couple of points that I think that I take away uh, from that. One is that's asking a lot of 18 year olds, 17 right. year olds, you know, to make this kind of broadly political decision to, 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 to reshape the landscape of college athletics. Um, you know, I think that that is asking them to go against everything that they know in the way that um, the way that we understand. So, you know, she worked at ESPN. She knows that black colleges barely get covered on ESPN, their games. Um, we don't you know, the scores are on the bottom line, but they're not the highlights are not done. Right. Um, she knows that the media, the way that the sports media works is that it, the attention is drawn to a handful of places, basically power five uh, football conferences and basketball program, power six basketball programs. Uh, so to ask, you know, black student athletes to, to make that decision when they have dreams and aspirations of making pros, I always look at, they're making a very, they're trying to be, they're making rational decisions, right? Like that's what they're trying to do. From especially at the elite, elite level, right? Yeah, if you have choices to go to Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson in football, those are the kinds of decisions that you're making. I do think that there, the that if she had framed her argument slightly different uh, and really targeted um, the middle and bottom tier of of Division One and then the top tier of FCS, I think she would have had a much more powerful argument in terms of just the real the the realities of of college athletics, right. Um, that, you know, HBCUs have not, um, you know, and North Carolina A&T FAMU this year, you know, it's like one or two programs every year, but none have had the success of North Dakota state or, you know, the university of Richmond right. or, you know, even Towson university, which has been pretty good over the last couple of years at the FCS level. And so there's a little bit about the kind of nuts and bolts, which don't make for great articles in the Atlantic, but make for a really good understanding of the real landscape of of college football. That's one. And then the second part of that is, I think that the other piece of this is that, as I think the the sentiment is correct, but it also doesn't acknowledge the fact that the way that the structures of power in college athletics work, would they allow this kind of of resource allocation to happen, right? And I think that I'm, I was struck by, uh, Bomani Jones had an excellent um, uh, uh, commentary on his show uh, where he said, you know, and what in the history would allow us to believe that either PWIs themselves or the NCAA would allow for black college at sports and athletics to become a major player? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I think those are those are two very realistic kind of opportunities, right? So, and I think in an idealized kind of um, thought 
experiment. I think she makes an excellent point. Um, but when we get into really thinking about real people and real decision-making uh, and the real history of power, um, it's unfortunate, but I want to see them to be successful. I, I really do. I think I like it that FAMU's, you know, playing well. I like it when North Carolina and T beats, you know, East Carolina. I think it, it's, it's a statement that the quality of not only the athletics of these institutions, but the institutions themselves uh, speak to an important role in the higher education, the, the landscape of higher education. And these schools need good press and they need, they need, they need these victories. They need these monies because as you know, uh, that they do something there, right? There's a reason Xavier produces more doctors, more black doctors than, you know, uh, LSU, exactly. right? There's something, ha- <laughs> there's something happening, right? There's, it's not about resources, but there's something happening in the walls of the institution, in the human resources and the human interactions that the material resources can't compensate. And so what my, my research suggests on the athletic side is that if you gave HBCUs the material resources, that you gave PWIs, they would out, they would surpass because the human resources that they've already developed, that legacy of both, both the legacy and the contemporary would produce extraordinary results for, for African-American communities. Cause they are basically as is, as resource challenges they are, are already doing so much more with less. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and and you know that's why I was actually gonna uh, uh, ask about you know what if you had uh, seen uh, Bomani's take. I, th- I guess it was on the right time, um, and so you know that that's actually a phenomenal answer for me because it, it brings to to my mind all of the discussions even now about this uh, uh, the Newsom uh, Governor Newsom in California uh, with a, a, a push from LeBron. To have a uh, you know to let uh, what's that California college athletes be able to make money off of their likeness, or you know there's a bill that um I think DeSantis Governor DeSantis in Florida uh, is pushing through along with other. It's one of the few, and, th- and this is like I think the weird thing about the compensation aspect. It's one of those weird bipartisan uh, uh you know uh uh. uh legislative issues that that is picking up traction of uh you know republican trump republicans and you know relatively progressive governors like newsom are both you know doing things and actually desantis is is more instantaneous than a 2023 measure like one in california uh so it's one of those odd pieces but then it also makes me think about um like you said putting the onus on the player when the structure is really at the heart of the blame it's uh it's it's a one of those odd pieces because in effect this is going to affect a generation uh, of student athletes um which is on the flip side why i'm very happy that when we do see hbcu players do well i.e uh Tarek cohen from ant and uh darius uh leonard uh, uh, a rookie of the year, a defensive player of the year, or defensive rookie of the year, uh, linebacker for um for the Indianapolis Colts, who who ended up transferring to South Carolina State. Those it's, it's like when when they win, it's not only A and T and South Carolina State that win; it's HBCU land, and that is what I always tell people when I'm recruiting students for HBCUs. That's the ultimate difference for me is that it's not only that you graduate from the the individual institution you also are within a tradition within historical black colleges and universities throughout the country yeah absolutely i think that's a that's been the fantastic part right you know um and and i think that as i as i you know as you know this book my book is is primarily about florida a and m as a as a way of telling this larger story right and i think that you could substitute out southern Instead of Florida A and M, you could substitute Grambling. You could substitute Prairie View, right? Like there, the the stories and details would be different, but in many ways, the broad framework is that that this is really as much about you know one institution uh, and one one coach, but it's also about the broader kind of framework of Black college football. And as you noted, that HBCUs, um, uh, you know, they work, they're competitive, they have their own internal robberies, but it's also that is a, a uniform kind of 
framework in which they all support one another. Uh, as you said, when one wins, everybody that wins. That is. And so one last question for you. How did how did you um how did oral histories work within within your book? Because obviously, you know, you have people who were uh, very much alive while all this is happening. So so what was the role of oral histories in your in your work? So oral history was probably, um, I think, uh, you know, my initial plan was to do a really robust oral history project. Um, but as I, you know, I, I cut it back to be perfectly honest, right? I think that for me, that the oral histories, um, there were a number of people who played for Gaither who, uh, who were still around. I talked to some of them both uh, on the record and kind of off the record to get a sense of what was there. But, you know, the thing that I found is that I needed to get a uh, uh, a really strong sense of what was happening. And so one of the things that I did kind of methodologically, just kind of talk about history, was I read 100 years of Black newspapers, right? Like, uh, you know, every week, every day, reading the sports section and getting a feel for the rhythm of what that was doing. That was one. Uh, two that Florida A&M has some really good institutional documents, right? Like they had institutional documents. Um, they had a Jake Gaither collection, which um, was at one point celebratory, but it gave me all this information about some of the institutional stadium stuff and, and attendance and budgets and those kinds of things that I find interesting that make it a blended, uh, you know, to kind of do this institutional part of the history. Uh, and then as I was preparing to uh, do the, the book manuscript, um, you know, and talking to my editor, they were like, it is too, to be perfectly honest, it's too long. And so I had a whole robust thing I was going to do uh, with Rudy Hubbard and the 1970s teams uh, that were really effective, that won the national title and whatnot. But I ended up cutting that uh, in part because the manuscript was too long and I wanted to kind of make it center on Jake Gaither. And so I did that. Uh, and so I really relied on some of the oral histories that had already been done. Uh, I did a few, um, but that was basically my my strategy at this point. Um, I would have loved to do more. In fact, I think that there should be a great documentary on not just FAMU. I mean, obviously, I think FAMU <laughs> should get a documentary. Uh, but I think that Black College football deserves a, a real live uh, documentary in the sense that, it, that we talk about not just Eddie Robinson, um, not just Jake Gaither, but we we talk about Ace Mumford and Billy Dix and Cleve Abbott and John Merritt uh, and 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 all these great co- all these great coaches who are who are Hall of Fame coaches at their institutions, but also get a sense of like telling this history, right? And I think that like that's what you know the history of college football lauds their coaches and they laud their programs in a way that. Black colleges have just never gotten to see. And so if we want to convince a young student athlete to come to Florida A&M, we have to sell them on the same kind of tradition that they sell at the University of Florida. Exactly. You know, like, and I think that, like, you know, kids if going to Florida, they hear about Steve Spurrier. They don't know about Steve Spurrier wearing a Confederate flag on his helmet one year, right? Because that's what they decided uh-huh. to wear in one of the games, right? Like, that kind of history gets a lot, you know, so they're erasing some kind of history, and black colleges are not even getting a conversation. So I think that that's part of what I, this is what I like to see. And I would love to hear uh, more from from alums and, and, and former players, and I hope they pick up this book and find uh, a voice and 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 move it forward. Absolutely, and your and your book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears: Jay Gaither, Florida A and M, and the History of Black College Football, definitely provides that basis for all of us to better understand how we've gotten to now, and also why we're also happy that your book and this interview is happening while FAMU is now, or I think, hovering around seventeenth in the F- FCS rankings. You know where. You know, we're, we're on the way. And e- despite us not being able to engage in the Celebration Bowl or to uh, to, to, to go through uh, the FCS uh, playoffs, it is still an important uh, uh, time to be engaging with this story. And uh, shouts out to Coach uh, Willie Simmons and the staff at FAMU uh, and th- with the football program for, for helping to turn it around. Because uh, someone who started in 2010 at FAM. Hoo-wee. Talking about institutional changes. Lord have mercy. There's a book just within these 10 years or so, um, <laughs> to say the least. But with, with all this being said, uh, Dr. White, it has been a blessing and an honor to have you on the program. 
you know, we're we're probably about double the amount of time that we had uh, had mentioned. But you know, that's the great thing about new books and FM. Sometimes you say you're going to do thirty to forty, then you look to your left and it's like uh, it's about a, an hour and four, and we're all right with that because there's a lot of information to pack in, and we gotta gotta make this thing capacious for an important person like the the the, the goat. You know the goat. Oh, not the you goat. Know, not the, the goat. The goat. Not definitely the goat. Not definitely. Not the ah, goat. man, Alonzo, Jake Gaither. What a great man! What a great man! And we definitely had a great man to author the story of of this p- important uh, uh, black college figure. And that person today has been Dr. Derek E. White, associate professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky to discuss his amazing new book published by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. And I just got to say it because at the end, I, Adam McNeil, represent Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, October 3rd, 1887. And that's seven for if we don't understand what I'm saying. 1887. What? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and so it's just been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the program. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have you on for for some of the next uh, books that you're that you're going to be putting out. And and if not, let's also show some support, y'all, to Dr. White and and his podcast that he co-hosts with another phenomenal historian, Professor uh, Lewis Moore. Uh, a Grand Valley State University professor, and their podcast is the Black Athlete Podcast. The Black Athlete Podcast, and you can get it wherever you get new books in African American studies as well. And until next time, folks, I'm your host Adam Neal, co-host of New Books in African American Studies. Over and out.